Welcome to episode 424 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have our regular contributor, Brooklyn-based comedic writer, comedian, singer, and songwriter, free spirit, Nash Rose, with her segment, Nash in New York. We talk about a recent trip she took to New Orleans with her mother, visiting slave plantations, accepting history, reparations, the difficulty of escaping. We also talk about a comparison uh, between music and comedy and the limits that people place on a, on a person not to fall prey to them and finding a still point inside of yourself, among other things. A great conversation with Nash Rose this week. We have an EWSA titled Cherokee. We share an excerpt from Colson Whitehead's masterpiece, The Underground Railroad. We have a poem called Songs. And of course, all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 424 of Troubadours and Tours.
Cherokee. Salacious sojourn into a seemingly sound station of the antebellum south, trying to be without serious doubt or remorse, believing you must stay the course of your personal dreams, despite the horrors your ancestors endured until society said no more, at least on the surface. Now it is buried beneath, more subtle in some ways, intrinsic in others. It has become part of our DNA, the pain and the suffering, the desire to leave it behind, to escape and somehow follow the pure echoes of an eternal wind chime reverberating through the alleyways, up and down the canals, in the cityscape, and out into the swamps, the woods, the countryside. Its history cannot disappear with time. To transcend we must first abide. It is in our psychology. It is in our soul. The truth we deny keeps us from being whole. I remember my friend Rossi, an African-American and Cherokee, talking with me way back when we were in our 20s about his feelings and philosophy regarding our society. We'd walk through the woods of central Ohio or sit on a porch in downtown Columbus, connecting as two young men from different places, trying to figure out the way... We never felt disconnected as peers, here at the same time, thick in the fray, in the same days. Though walking lightly too, as brothers seeking to understand the moment as it connects to the past, and wondering how long it all lasts into the great unknown, sometimes we talked about our dreams too, it has been 33 years since then. Now, he is in Maryland, and I am in Pennsylvania. We plan on getting together again soon. One, two, three, and...
Nash Rose, is that you? It's me. How are you? Good, good. It's uh, wonderful to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours yet again. Nash Rose, Nash in New York, Brooklyn-based comedic writer, comedian, singer, and songwriter. Free spirit, I should add as well. How's everything going? <laughs> everything is wonderful. Uh, that's good everything to hear. Everything is wonderful. That's good to hear. How about you? Yeah, you know, uh, wonderful. I, uh, yes, everything is wonderful here. Wonderful is the, is the word of the day, I guess. Yeah, I'm feeling good. <laughs> There's always a couple of things, you know. I guess it's uh, a matter of not focusing on those couple of things and focusing on all the other stuff that's actually good, right? Right, exactly. Uh so we're talking. We're we're talking with you uh, while you are roaming around. Or are you at your apartment? Um, I'm not at home. I'm actually in Manhattan, but I'm in a quiet location to do this. Excellent um, interview, and then I'm going to be on the go again. Excellent, excellent. And I I know uh, recently you took your mother on a trip, right, for Mother's Day. I did. I did. We went to New Orleans. I took her to New Orleans. It was her first time going. And uh, why did you choose New Orleans to take your mom for Mother's Day? Well, you know, it's actually kind of a, it's kind of a funny, well, it's not really funny, but New Orleans is like one of my favorite cities in the whole world. And I have this habit of just checking Google flights to see, I literally just, always check the flight to see if there are any good deals. And I was on the phone with her and I was checking Google flights just to do it. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe the round trip tickets are only like $78. which is really unheard of for New Orleans. They're always like two something minimum. And I was like, I'm going to book a trip to New Orleans. She was like, Oh, I want to go. And she never wants to go anywhere. <laughs> and I was like, you want to go? 
I was like, all right. So then I looked to see what Mother's Day weekend was, and it was the same price. So I just booked a ticket for me and her, and that's how that happened. She kind of tagged along, but I'm glad she did. <laughs> yeah, it sounds – I mean, I was checking out what you were posting in social media, and uh, it looked – and it sounded like you were having a, a, a pretty – incredible time and it seems like you of course you had fun but it also seems to me like you had uh moments of um sort of poignancy um i I don't know if i would say poignancy um I, i wouldn't say that we did visit um a slave plantation I don't know if that's what you're referencing. That could be the only thing you're referencing, right? Yeah, um, that's exactly what I'm talking and, about. And yeah, it was, it was something I've always wanted to do, but I never had the time to do when I went to New Orleans because it's like an hour or more, a little bit more than an hour outside of the actual city of New Orleans. And um, we went to uh, Oak Oak Alley Plantation, and it was. And I feel like it was an amazing experience. Um, I don't feel like it, I think it was more poignant for my mother. She was a little bit more sad um, about, you know, seeing and being reminded of things. Um, for me, I I kind of approach the world in a, in a very different way. Uh, I'm sure you've realized this by now in our conversations, but I kind of accepted that that's the history. And so I went because I wanted to finally see some kind of like, I guess product. I don't want to say that word. It's not the best word to use for this. Some kind of like proof, I guess, of history, because as you know, and many people know, uh, the people that are called African-Americans, don't have real history um, or aren't told their history or don't really know it. So it's, it was my first time within the country that I'm from through my lineage and that I've lived in and I was born into that I can go somewhere and see a trace of any kind of ancestral activity, which I guess that part is sad that it is a slave plantation, but it was exciting for me to look at history even though they kind of redid it but it was it was exciting obviously sad but exciting it didn't make me sad but it made my mom cry well yeah i mean knowing your mom and knowing how long she's struggled and fought uh to educate you know herself and the larger community about the the history of this country i can understand um why uh she she was affected in the way you described. So, you know, you, you uh your family has African American history uh as part of your you know, who you are, uh among I'm sure other aspects of, of human history too, probably some European history as well, because that's all intermingled as we know in this country. Yeah. Um but you you made a, a comment that I thought was amusing, and you are you know, you are a comedic writer, comedian, so it wasn't surprising how 
uh, and I'm paraphrasing, so I'm not going to do it as the justice that you would, but something to the effect that uh, if, if the, the, the people who lived in those slave quarters knew that you paid to come back as an African-American person to the plantation, they'd be rolling in their graves. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that. I still think it's ironic that like I paid with excitement to go back to the plantation where so many, so many people lost their lives trying to run away and were forced to be there. Um, it's ironic more than funny, I guess. But yeah, and I and when I was there, the thought was even more intense. Like I, I, I was saying that before I went there a lot because it was like, man, we don't get reparations. The least they could do is let us not have to pay to go back to the plantation, right? That would be, like, kind of cool. It's so weird that we have to pay for that, but whatever. But it came into, like, I never So You always hear about runaway slaves and what they had to go through and how they got caught and the brutality that they experienced be made an example out of. But when we were on the bus, we took um, this tour bus uh, from the city to... I guess the country, I don't know what to call it. But when we got to the area of the plantation we were visiting, there were so many slave plantations lined like a- along this levee, I guess, if you will. Um, just this road, this long road, so many plantations. Even the one that featured, um, that was featured in the movie Django Unchained, mm-hmm. which that- I don't want to say is cool, but it's kind of cool, but... Um, so many. And so it just brought this heavy thought upon me of like, it had to be two things. One, insanely horrific of an experience for a slave to want to risk running with that many overseers in the area. And two, it had to be nearly impossible to successfully run with that many plantations lined up. And that's just what's left. I did uh, research on it, and it was like 300 plantations lined up in that strip that we passed. And now it's only like maybe like 20 or something, which is still a lot. So that was kind of mind-blowing. Like just, I never thought of that. I, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize these plantations were like next door, like back to back to back to back. Like you're not escaping. The only way out is through the swamp and I don't see how you're making it through that. Yeah, yeah, it's it is horrific. It must have been horrific. You're, you're right because looking at the odds and understanding the ramifications uh, of uh, you know what would happen if you were indeed caught, y- 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 but still going going for it because you just can't handle staying anymore. It's that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. I, I guess that's why I guess that's why we we don't we don't uh, talk about it, right? Because we don't want to we don't want to um, process it. Uh, I suppose some people, you know, some people they just don't care. I'm sure, and other people maybe they care, but they don't want to deal. Uh, especially people that yeah. don't have to deal. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to if I'm saying that fairly. I'm talking about people that are strictly European in their, you know, ancestry, people that are uh, African-American but also have European uh, connections. It's, uh, you know, do people that are are of African-American history and and lineage, 
Do they want to know about it? Do they want to hear about it? You know, do they want to think about it? I would wonder. Because it's, what's interesting is a lot of a lot of um, black people aren't even aware, surprisingly, that a lot of these plantations are still up, and more than that, that they can visit them. Um, and when we were there, one of the tour guides, and she was an amazing tour guide, told us that these they usually don't get a lot of local people. And a lot of the local people are black. New Orleans has a lot of black people. And they started to get more people during COVID. And they kind of chalked it up to people getting cabin fever and just wanting to do something. And um, even still, like when they had tourists, it was, it's usually like predominantly a white crowd. And so my mom was... <laughs> She was like, I don't know why. She's like, I'm surprised that so many white people want to come and learn about slavery. And I'm like, Mom, I don't think that's what they're coming to learn about. There's this whole antebellum self thing that's kind of been uh, romanticized. And that is a part of American white culture. And for them, the slaves just happen to be a part of that. So they're not actually here to learn about slavery. They're here to look at the dresses and see the china and look at the big house and look at the oak trees and all of that. And that was kind of disappointing to her, but it's true. Annabellum South is is his, is very nostalgic for people, if you will, I guess. Wow, I mean, now you're making me think about you know the old MAGA bullcrap, right? As <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, is that you know? I mean, again, make it great again and if people are thinking that that was greatness i mean they'll never admit it i mean you got to be really ugly to openly admit that but you wonder right you wonder how far back people would want to go or if they understand how terrible it truly was or if it is all mythologized and and you know recast in in a in a, a way that looks nice or seems like it there's a character to it or or, or something, you know, that we should uh, try to embrace or recreate. You know, we're so mixed up with regard to what we know and what we understand about our history. Yeah. It's interesting. And, you know, another conversation I had with someone else about it was, um, you know, the Holocaust gets so much exposure and sympathy, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And I really don't like comparing the two because I don't think you can compare two tragedies like one is worse than the other. They're both terrible, right? But I was trying to explain, like, I, I think we might, I don't know. I can't say for sure because I don't I have no idea. I've never been to Germany, so I have no idea how it's, how it's handled there. But in America, I think Americans tend to feel like the heroes or just not a part of that. So it's something that's easier to talk about versus slavery is kind of like making white Americans the bad guy. And I like to kind of compare that to like, like ourselves. When we think about ourselves, whenever we've done something we're ashamed of, it's not the first thing we're willing to talk about and go into detail, even if we're like, yeah, I did that. And I'm sorry for it. But you're not going to lay out every single thing that you did and hear it over and over again, because you're ashamed of it. And I think, I really think that that has a lot to do with the whole, what about slavery? Well, slavery was a long time ago. Get over it. It's not really like get over it, but it, or maybe for some people it probably is, but I think there is a shame there. And I felt it. 
amongst uh, the other white people who were at the plantation, which was pretty funny because it was like, <laughs> like at museums, you usually like have to fight to see an exhibit, but every room that me, me and my mom and there it was me and my mom and like two other black people out of, I want to say there had to be 70 people there. And so any room that me and my mom walked in, literally I feel like every white person would just like gracefully get out of the way for any exhibit we walked towards. And it was just like, and it wasn't like a, we're not interested in this. It was just kind of like a, a white guilt. Like, Oh, this is, I don't know what to do. You, you deserve to look at this more than we do. And it was just kind of funny to see that. So that kind of made me feel like maybe there is a shame there and we're kind of looking at it defensively. Yeah. I, I, there might be a, sometimes shame is weird too. I would imagine. I, I think like the, in the, in the moment they felt it, but they're not walking away, holding on to it, you know, after that day, after no. that event. No, and I, it, I don't think so. No. And if you really want things to change, right. I mean, we talk about this all the time. When I say we, I mean, people who are interested in, in uh, healing the wounds of our society that you, you know and the problems uh, that truly exist systemically in our society you can't just talk the talk you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves take responsibility and do the hard work to re refurbish so to speak you know everything to 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 make it better it's not it's not like oh i feel bad and then it's done you know uh right. yeah it's interesting. It's very, it's very interesting. And uh, then you know, you 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 and your mom kind of left those folks and went back to New Orleans. Uh, you left the country, went back into the city, and then had some fun. Yeah, we had so much fun. I mean, all I wanted to do in that trip was go to that slave plantation. So at that point, I was fulfilled completely. And then I uh, I took my mom, which I didn't think she was going to like. I took her to Bourbon Street, and she loved Bourbon Street. She was ready to party very hard, which was very shocking to me because I don't really like that kind of stuff. But she was drinking hand grenades, and checking, <laughs> she wanted to go to every bar. <laughs> like, who is this woman? She got drunk. I haven't seen her drunk, and I don't even remember if I ever did before, to be honest. But it was fun. She had a lot of fun, and then the next day... Um, took her on a, um, a riverboat cruise, which she loves. She always wanted to go on a riverboat. And we did that and watched live jazz and drank again and had a good time. It was great. It was really great. She had so much fun, and I'm so happy that she did. Uh, have you always uh, been able to, to get along with your mom like you did on this trip, or were there phases in your life? I mean, you're in your 30s now. Uh, are there were there phases in your life where you you know you could not get along with her? Mm, not that I can recall at this moment. Not, I mean, I'm sure we've had our disagreements, but for the most part, we've gotten along. If anything, I say now we're getting along less. <laughs> but um, for the most part, yeah, I've been able to get along with my mom. That's She's been a great person in my life, a great influence. Oh yeah, she's cool, Diane. Let's give her. Let's let's let people know her name, Diane. She's a yeah, she's a cool person, no doubt about it. Um, hello, Diane, if you're listening. Uh, we we went out one time to have a drink after we taped a TV show. You know, I used to have her on my TV show, and we talked about some important 
stuff in our community. And uh, we went, uh, right. yeah, we went, she, myself, and I think the guy who was uh, doing the camera went out and had a drink. But she did not get drunk. She's very res- responsible and respectable. Well, only with you, maybe. Maybe she only feels comfortable <laughs> like that with you, Nash. Um, it must have been Bourbon Street. <laughs> oh, Bourbon Street would do it to anybody, I'd imagine, right? <laughs> so uh, what else is up? You had a nice uh, trip with your mother in uh, New Orleans. What else is up? What else is going on with you, Nash? Nash in New York? Yeah, um, right now my main focus is uh, on this music project that I've been working on tirelessly. Um that I'm, it's an EP that I'm putting out in July. Hopefully, if I meet the deadlines, it'll be out in July. But in the meantime, I have a single coming out next week, well, on June 10th. And um, just trying to figure out how to market that. Do all of that while continue to write new jokes and do comedy shows. It's been kind of weird doing both. But I'm finally at a point where I feel okay with doing both, even though I'm still trying to figure out if I'm going to continue to do both. You're talking music and comedy. Right. Just two different creative processes and feels like two different parts of my brain that goes into either of those. Have you figured out which one you like better? I don't think it's a matter of better. They're just so, they're both very different and they fulfill two different creative cravings if you will within me um music i feel much more in control of much more in control of and comedy music it's like music you can just do you know somebody may not like the song that you wrote or the style of music you choose to do but they can still be like oh but you have a nice voice Comedy is literally 100% dependent upon the audience. If they're not laughing, then you're just not good. And so you feel a little bit more, or I feel a little bit more out of control with that. And so when you do get a laugh, it feels like more of an addiction. Yeah. (laughs) At this point, it's like you're addicted to the adrenaline rush of what it takes to get on stage and being on stage and getting the laugh. And then you want to go back and keep going better where music is more like therapeutic. It's fun. I, anything can inspire it. I can do whatever I want to be whoever I want. I can sound however I want to sound. It's just two totally different things. Have you sat down with anyone that really knows you and is honest with you and, and uh, could tell you which they think you're better suited for, or do you think you're just as uh, well suited for either pursuit I would never sit down and ask somebody what they think I'm better suited for, ever, in my life, because that would just be their opinion. Well, so I, I guess you, the assumption being you can trust their judgment and their objective, and they have good senses, you know, have a good sense about things of that nature. But I guess you don't know anybody like that at, mo- at the moment. I know a lot of people that I could go to, but as an artist, you w- I wouldn't do that. Why not? Do that because people, no matter what people think their honesty is, it's coming from a place of what they think their limits are, and how they view the world, and the limits that they're deciding to place on you. And I would never. I've done that in the past with things, and I've taken advice. People thought I was better suited here or there, and I regret it to this day, because. 
that was their opinion based on who I was at the moment, based on the level that I was developed at the moment. So you're saying basically... I wanted to do comedy. Like, I wanted to do comedy... Oh, maybe when I was, like, 20. I listened to someone who told me they don't think that that's for me. If I had started comedy when I was 20, it would be insane where I'd be at right now. Because I'm very good at comedy. I'm very good at stand-up comedy. But I listened to somebody else who was judging me based on what they knew of my past, what they knew of my current skill set, and what they thought I should be and where I should go. And I will never listen to anybody else's opinion. I will hear I will keep it in mind, but it will not influence what I choose to do. Well, I, I I don't think it could. Uh, it couldn't. I mean, it must be an influence. You might. You just won't let it dominate. You know, you'll make the final decision based on what you think is best. But I, if, as soon as you hear something from somebody, I think it, it, it in some way, even if it'll just a little bit influences you. But, I think it takes some skill to not let it influence you. I think there. I think it really does take concentrated skill to not influence. You may feel something in that moment. It may discourage you momentarily, but how you continue will determine whether or not it influenced you. That's just been my, I mean, that's just my experience. Cause I've had people say things like you should give up comedy. You should just do music. I had people say, ah, you shouldn't do music. You should just do comedy. You should do both. And it's like, if I imagine if I really listened to everything that everybody was saying, it's like you have to find the still point inside of yourself to find that determination of what you're going to do no matter what. You have to find a way to influence yourself by your life desires. And that's just, it's very hard to do, but I really try to do it because, oh, so many moments that be discouraged or shifted one way. So many moments. And I remember, I remember the things that people say. Uh, very wise. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have an active thought of specifically with music while I'm balancing music and comedy because I've had so many people offer their opinions, and that's why I'm like I'm going to keep doing both until my heart tells me which one I'm supposed to be doing. I'll know. I'll know. Yeah, I, I mean, why do you have to choose? Why can't you do both anyway? Unless you just think you you need to put all of your energy into the one so they can be the best at it as possible as as is possible. But why can't I believe you do it'll both? Come to something like that. I think it'll come to something like that. I mean, I spent a lot of time with this thought, like so much time. And whenever I can't make like a decision right away, I just say time will always reveal the answer, and it does. But anything, and it always does. And everything happens exactly when it's supposed to, at least for me in my life so far, gratefully. And um, I don't know. I feel like, like in my heart, I feel like one is going to have to take precedence over the other for sure if it's going to be the success, if that makes sense. But I'm kind of just feeling it out. If I were to, I know what I, what I, what I think it'll be but I'm just keeping it to myself to see what happens. It's hard, too. Like, a lot of people don't know I, I was doing music way longer than I ever did comedy, and I stopped because I started doing comedy. But it's hard to just even think about not doing comedy because I've been doing it for almost seven years now. And while that's not a very long time in the comedy world, it's seven years of daily practice, 
almost daily shows. It just feels so a part of you. It's such a different culture. And it's just like, even if I ended up just doing nothing but music, whether that transformed into songwriting for other big artists, which is very lucrative and fun, I still can't see comedy not being a part of me in some way. So I don't know. I'm just going to wait and see where I'm guided, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And, I, you know, it, it uh, I guess, again, it connects back to that buzz you get when you're with a live crowd and you're, and you're connecting with them, uh, I suppose, based on what you shared today. And, I mean, for myself, I, I think generally, if you're a person, if anybody's a person who's trying to, to make a difference, um, I think there's more room to make a difference in changing people's minds and connecting with them when you're on stage and, and live, uh, especially in the moment. I mean, you have something that's that's crafted. You have a, an act, but there must be some component of it that is that is organic, and and uh, that just seems to me more exciting and 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 has much more potential to to truly make a difference in the way people might view things or think about things or feel about things than music. Though music too, music is very inspiring for me. Music saves me often, inspires me, makes gives me a place to to also uh, go to when I, I I need comfort. So yeah, I guess they're both very powerful as uh, you know um, uh, forms of art and and uh, ways to to nourish humanity. Sounds like you have two great choices. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it. I guess if you were doing both of them, you'd be approaching it from how you can affect and make a difference in the world. It sounds like. Yes. And that would that would that would uh, dwindle down your choice. That's not really how I approach art. Although I do think it's great when your art can have that influence on like a large scale and impact the world. There's something magical about that ability. There surely is. So, Nash, we're just about up this go-round. Regular contributor on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, I'm happy to say, Nash Rose, coming to us, nestled away in some enclave in Manhattan in the middle of her day, <laughs> daily pursuits. Uh, so if people want to stay connected to what you're doing, uh, how, how could they do that? Uh, the best way would be to follow me on Instagram at NashXRose. Nash X Rose, and uh, the EP should be out shortly, and they can find out about that through Instagram as well. Yes, everything is currently on my Instagram, and I update it way too often. <laughs> uh, any any <laughs> final thoughts for the throngs of listeners? Um, life is so short. Do what makes you happy what makes you happy. Very important. Well said. Thank you, Nash. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I, re I really enjoy it. Thank you so much for being on the program. Yeah, I always have so much fun. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye. Bye. Oh.
nation moving so fast, getting out hashtags is a lynch mob ready to kill you. excerpt from Colson Whitehead's masterpiece, The Underground Railroad. She could not figure him. On the mornings of her three whippings, Caesar had stood in the front of the pack. It was customary for slaves to witness the abuse of their brethren as moral instruction. At some point during the show, everyone had to turn away, if only for a moment as they considered the slaves' pain, and the day, sooner or later, when it would be their turn at the foul end of the lash. That was you up there, even when it was not. But Caesar did not flinch. He didn't seek her eyes, but looked at something beyond her, something great and difficult to make out. She said, You think I'm a lucky charm because Mabel got away? But I ain't. You saw me. You saw what happens when you get a thought in your head. Caesar was unmoved. It's going to be bad when he gets back. It's bad now, Cora said. Ever has been. She left him there. 
The new stocks Terence ordered explained the delay in Big Anthony's justice. The woodworkers toiled all through the night to complete the restraints, furnishing them with ambitious, if crude, engravings, minotaurs, busty mermaids, and other fantastic creatures frolicked in the wood. The stocks were installed on the front lawn in the lush grass. Two bosses secured Big Anthony, and there he dangled the first day. On the second day, a band of visitors arrived in a carriage, august souls from Atlanta and Savannah, swell ladies and gentlemen that Terence had met on his travels, as well as a newspaper man from London come to report on the American scene. They ate at a table set up on the lawn, savoring Alice's turtle soup and mutton, and devising compliments for the cook, who would never receive them. Big Anthony was whipped for the duration of their meal, and they ate slow. The newspaper man scribbled on paper between bites. Dessert came, and the revelers moved inside to be free of the mosquitoes, while Big Anthony's punishment continued. On the third day, just after lunch, the hands were recalled from the fields. The washwomen and cooks and stable hands interrupted from their tasks. The house staff diverted from its maintenance. They gathered on the front lawn. Randall's visitors sipped spiced rum as Big Anthony was doused with oil and roasted. The witnesses were spared his screams, as his manhood had been cut off on the first day, stuffed in his mouth and sewn in. The stocks smoked, charred, and burned, the figures in the wood twisting in the flames as if alive. Terence addressed the slaves of the northern and southern halves. There is one plantation now, united in purpose and method, he said, he expressed his grief over his brother's death and his consolation in the knowledge that James was in heaven united with their mother and father. He walked among his slaves as he talked, tapping his cane, rubbing the heads of piccaninnies and petting some of the older worthies from the southern half. He checked the teeth of a young buck he had never seen before, wrenching the boy's jaw to get a good look, and nodded in approval. In order to feed the world's insatiable demand for cotton goods, he said, every picker's daily quota will be increased by a percentage determined by their numbers from the previous harvest. The fields will be reorganized to accommodate a more efficient number of rows. He walked. He slapped a man across the face for weeping at the sight of his friend thrashing against the stocks. When Terence got to Cora, he slipped his hand into her shift and cupped her breast. He squeezed. She did not move. No one had moved since the beginning of his address, not even to pinch their noses to keep out the smell of Big Anthony's roasting flesh. No more feasts outside of Christmas and Easter, he said. He will arrange and approve all marriages personally to ensure the appropriateness of the match and the promise of the offspring a new tax on Sunday labor off the plantation. He nodded at Cora and continued his stroll among his Africans as he shared his improvements. Terence 
concluded his address. It was understood that the slaves were to remain there until Connolly dismissed them. The Savannah ladies refreshed their drinks from the pitcher. The newspaper man opened a fresh diary and resumed his note-taking. Master Terence joined his guests, and they departed for a tour of the cotton. Chipmunks in Manhattan, stockbrokers in Missoula, the happiness of summer gatherings outside in the warm sun. Altogether in this work, none of us going berserk, and the songs across the neighborhood of people and birds and cars and dogs and flags and frogs and scooters and bikes and shoes 
And here we are in life, trying to do what we choose. Episode 424 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend Nash Rose. I'd like to thank the great writer Colson Whitehead. And these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Ben Folds Five, Coco Rocco, 
Fantastic Negrito, Favorite People, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Terrence Blanchard and Brentford Marsalis too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.